0: Good morning, Church. I got a scripture for us to start us out this morning. First uh, Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Amen. Am I on? There I am. Good morning. Thank you for joining us today whether in this auditorium, out in the parking lot, if we got people in cars, if I'm on the FM radio. Church of Christ FM radio. <clears throat> well, we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians, and we're getting into some hard chapters. And I have to say some hard things because of this. But I hope my heart comes through as well, and I hope most of all that Paul's heart comes to us as well to help us hear some of these, un, these hard things that have to be said in a way um, that challenges us, uh, but also comes in the spirit of love. So remember last week as we were finishing chapter 4, Paul says, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children Even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. You see, the spirit behind Paul's writing, it isn't to just shame them and make them feel bad about themselves, or uh, it is the spirit behind the writing that is more akin to the love a parent has for their child. And uh, wanting good things for them, wanting to protect them, wanting them to grow and to thrive. Uh, Because he loves the Corinthians and the Corinthian church, Paul doesn't tiptoe around hard issues, but rather he addresses them head-on. And so now as we get into chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul has some really difficult things to share. Uh, Issues relating to sexual immorality, issues of lawsuits among believers and things like that. And uh, the, one of these situations is so extreme that it, it uh, causes Paul to exercise authority and to pass judgment and to command the Corinthian church to withdraw fellowship from someone. And so if you don't understand Paul's motivation, it's very difficult to understand some of the hard stuff that he has to say. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of the kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Uh, The Christian understanding of sexuality and... Uh, the way we practice practice our sexuality, uh, it, it is based in some of the teachings of the Old Testament that are understood also in the New Testament. So Paul has in mind in some of the things that he writes, verses like from Exodus 20, 14 and Exodus 22, Leviticus chapter 18, 19, 29, Ezekiel chapter 23, 36 through 49, I can give you those references if you're curious, but uh, one of these outside of the boundaries of Christian sexual ethics is this issue of incest. And uh, of course, you know, we know that the Judeo-Christian tradition of what is allowed and what is not allowed... uh, it was much more narrowly defined than what the culture generally around them practiced or, or had. But even godless pagans understood that something like this was not okay. Uh, and so even though their definitions were much wider of what is good and what God wants, uh, a, a man having sex with his mother, whether a birth mom or a stepmom, is just simply not allowed. And the way that Paul words this, it's probably a stepmother in this particular circumstance, but there's some ambiguity there. But the bigger problem is, is you know, there's this actual circumstance of a particular person's sexual sin. But the bigger problem is the way that the church is handling it in this particular case. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? tolerance of sin had become another situation that was building this theme of pride and worldly wisdom among the Corinthian believers. Look how tolerant we are. We are so involved, evolved, we are enlightened, uh, we are loving to the point that what you do in your own privacy, it doesn't even matter anymore. And Paul says what you really should be feeling is a kind of grief that you would feel when someone you love has died. That's how serious this situation is. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you. This way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. While the Corinthians are puffed up about who their you know, favorite uh, teacher was, uh, where they're enamored by eloquence, where they have worldly wisdom, where they tolerate uh, uh, clear sin in their midst, uh, Paul is not puffed up. He is instead rather decisive. And this unrepentant person. Needs to be excluded from the church and kicked out. It's not a disputable matter for him. It's not something that's open for debate. This is such a serious situation that this person just needs to be removed from the fellowship. So, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. A couple of things that we need to point out here. First, I don't know if you've noticed in these last few verses how many times the word spirit has come up. We have already learned in Corinthians that individuals have a spirit. You have a spirit. Calvin up here has his own spirit. And God comes to us as Holy Spirit, and we relate to God through the Holy Spirit, a spirit who instructs us, a spirit who connects us to God, and in some ways to each other as well. So while Paul is not physically present there with the Corinthians, the spirit of the things that he has taught them, they remain with them, The spirit of his love as a parent, it remains with them. The spirit of his desire for their good and good things for them, it is together with them, that spirit. Uh, The spirit with which Paul writes this letter now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is with the church. Paul's spirit, Paul's heart, Paul's desire, Paul's love, Paul's will, It stands together with this church in a difficult situation. And then there's this phrase, when the power of our Lord Jesus is present. When the power of our Lord Jesus is present. And I think that this is referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence and power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the gathered community is something that Paul assumes at least some of the Corinthians, some of the Corinthian disciples at least, they had experienced this power of the Lord, that they could recognize this power of the Lord in their midst. Keep in mind that Paul has already said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, these words, we have all received the Spirit of God in order that we might know the things that were graciously given to us by God. You see, the Spirit re- reveals knowledge; it shows us things, and uh, it helps communicate things to us that we need to hear and understand. The Spirit, the Spirit makes us one. The Spirit helps us to know and understand the things that God has given to us, what He desires from us. And Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit will even help us deal with difficult situations that a church may face, even when they're painful and grievous, give us grief, like uh, the loss of someone we love. But there's some other things in this section that need clarification. This idea of handing over to Satan, what is that? Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Well, there are several things that we could say about this. This handing over implies the the passing from a situation of protection within the church over to a situation of destruction under the dominion of Satan, where the power of Satan holds sway in a different kind of way. And I don't think that this idea of flesh and spirit that's mentioned here, it's not a full-blown dualism or the seeds of Gnosticism that Paul is kind of talking about. But the flesh is a synonym for the worldly part of a person. It's the unredeemed, unrepentant part of you that needs to be put to death. Uh, And sometimes persons would need to be, and parts of us individually, need to be put out from the holiness of what we are trying to do, put out of community for the sake of the mission that we're given. Again, this is a situation that it looks like this person is unrepentant, they are defiant, they are militant, they are unwilling to change or admit any kind of fault. This is a kind of willful sin that is, it's brazing and flaunting, it's militant, it's rubbing your nose in it, it's unwilling to change. And in situations like that, an entire church can be put at risk. So Paul commands an extreme measure to an extreme situation. And this, let me just say, this action is not without precedent. He is in line with things that Jesus himself taught about an unrepentant person. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That doesn't mean you stop loving them. But they cannot be a part of what the church is doing until that place of repentance has come. Another thing I wanted to point out is always, maybe this action doesn't make the same kind of sense that it did in that day at the beginning. I mean, there are a hundred churches here in Eugene, and I can pick a different one and a different flavor, and I can hear things that I like better or not. Always, though, an action like this, it has in mind the restoration of the individuals involved. It has in mind the protection of the body of Christ and what we are doing as a church fellowship, as disciples of Jesus. But whenever something like this would happen that's so extreme like this, There is an idea of the restoration of the individual. When a hard heart actually breaks and becomes soft again, restoration is able to be made. And that's this idea behind, may be saved. Maybe it's the day of the Lord. I don't know, the day of the Lord usually refers to the end of time. But I know while there is life, there is hope of repentance. And there is a chance that people's whose heart is hard. At some point, something changes and something breaks, and hard hearts become soft. And those who are outside the community of faith, they dare to dream of coming back and being a part of things again. And we need to be a church with open arms to take people back in. You know, most people, uh, in today's society, if they, we self-edit and we just like, I don't like this, I don't want this, and, and we go and we don't give a place for hard words to be heard, to wrestle with the hard things that we have to wrestle with. But hearts can change over time. And what seems impossible now through the power of the Holy Spirit at work. See, we're never beyond the reach of God. We may be outside regular fellowship with a church for whatever reason. And there are churches that are broken and toxic and dangerous in a lot of ways. But somehow with the work of God, we are constantly pursued. We're never abandoned from God, even if church Has made a mistake, even if the church has told you a hard word that you don't want to hear, God still works, God still pursues. And things that seemed impossible to us before, at different seasons and at different times, suddenly they become possible. So again, think about this situation. This is language that we hear of someone who is puffed up or proud or boasting. And these words that Paul uses, uh, reveals a sickness of spirit and will and heart. And it is a condition that can have an effect on more than just one person. It can infect an entire community of people. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? A little bit can do a lot of damage. So this is a new image that Paul is giving to us. But he goes on. It's not just a bread-making image. It's also tied to some Jewish celebrations. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are reminding you of your identity in Christ. You are the new unleavened batch. You are living a different kind of life. You have been called out of darkness and been invited into his marvelous light. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified, and therefore let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this analogy, uh, uh, that there's a time that this idea of leaven, of something small affecting something, that, that it is a positive in the way that the, the kingdom of God can spread. But Paul is using it this way to talk about the way that sin can spread uh, and work its way into the church. But this fe- it's also tied to this festivals of uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is kind of what he's referring to here, along with the Jewish Passover. And even though he's in the midst of a very difficult conversation, I find Paul's words strangely hopeful, in a weird kind of way. Um, See, the problem doesn't just lay with one individual who is unrepentant of sin. The problem is also tied to uh, the failure of the leadership of this church uh, that pats themselves on the back for being so tolerant of this sin situation. And the problem also lies with members of the community who just keep their mouths shut and go along with things because it's easier that way. And now in that kind of situation, the whole community is in danger. So this image of leaven that permeates bread, it is appropriate. Something small can have a dramatic effect on a whole group. We understand that and we recognize that. There comes a time when love demands that we talk about the holiness of God. There comes a time that love demands, that we talk about righteousness and truth. Paul says it a different way in Second Corinthians. "Come out from them and be separate," says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. You see, we are a community that has a purpose. And that purpose isn't just a loose bunch of people living life however you want, with a few nice sayings of Jesus sprinkled on top. There is a story happening in this church that is bigger than your personal wants and your personal desires. Mine as well. It's bigger than my love of pleasure. It's bigger than my need to have things my way, your way, right away, my way or the highway. There's a story bigger than that. Paul's talk about unleavened bread and Passover lambs. It's to help the church remember our mission. We are the people of a new exodus. A new exodus is what Paul is talking about. See, in Paul's day, bread making was not an unusual thing. It was a very normal thing. It happened all the time. Very rarely would anyone be able to get a hold of anything that looks like pure yeast, what we understand as, as pure yeast or pure leaven. So most households, the way they made bread is when they finished, uh, before they baked the bread, they would take a little bit of the raw dough and they would set that raw dough aside. And that raw dough would contain some of the yeast and the things that would continue to grow. Uh, and then that little bit that's held aside, they would me- mix that into that whole batch of the next day's bread. And so that, that continues to, to do a work. I guess maybe that's more akin to making like sourdough, sourdough starter of some kind. I've got a few few nods from you knowledgeable bread people. Thank you for that. I didn't know how shaky the ground was. I was on. In warmer climates, especially, there needed to be a regular time when the leaven was cleared out completely. When you just had to get it all out and a fresh start had to be made. Otherwise, if you just keep on using that same bit of raw dough and it goes on long enough in those kind of environment of that time, a lack of hygiene, contamination from other things, Dangerous things, dangerous organisms that start to grow, without that regular time of cleaning out the old leaven, there was a real danger of sickness, and a real danger of the whole batch being ruined and contaminated by that little bit of dough. Well, for the Jew, the feast of unleavened bread, it was a time that came every year where the old yeast is thrown out, and you had to start again from scratch. And any leaven that you had in the house, it had to be removed for seven days. Seven days, there cannot be anything of the old, the understanding of leaven there. And so now the bread is a new beginning. It's an unleavened bread. At the heart of this festival, this festival, this feast of unleavened bread, uh, it's talked about in Exodus 12 and 13. There was a picture of separation and redemption, the separation of God's people from the dominion of Egypt and redemption out of that old way of life into something new. This cleaning out was a useful analogy that Paul is using that talks about changing from the old in order to start over again, to start something new. We are trying to start something new in the church. The old ways, they need to be left behind. The old bread of malice and wickedness, it gives way to the new unleavened bread of sincerity, and truth. And Paul doesn't just tie this to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He ties this analogy to the Passover. And when he's talking about Jesus is the Passover lamb, he's talking, he's referring to Jesus' death on the cross as our new Passover. And the unleavened bread of the Passover, it was unleavened not because of this Feast they were celebrating where they had to get rid of the old. And it was unleavened in the Passover because there simply wasn't time anymore for the old ways, the old leaven to rise. It wasn't time to sit and wait for the bread to rise in the old ways. We don't have time to sit around and let leaven, the leaven of sin, take over the whole batch because, as a church, we are on a mission. We are a people who are making our escape. That's what we're doing. We're escaping Egypt. We are a people on a whole new Exodus march. Jesus is our new Moses shouting to the principalities and the powers, let my people go. At the same time, Jesus is the Passover lamb who we eat in order that we may have strength for this journey ahead. The blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb, is smeared on the doorposts of our hearts and protects us from the destroying angel and the power of sin. And we pass out of the old house of slavery, slavery to sin. And we pass under the threshold of Jesus' blood, out onto new pathways of freedom. And Satan, like the armies of Pharaoh, are in hot pursuit. And the journey is arduous. And some who go their own way will be overtaken. Others will perish because of the hardships of the desert. And we mourn for the people who we love, who are lost, and we cry for them. And with tears in our eyes, we pray for those who have wandered off. We pray that they will find their way back to us. But we cannot stop in the desert. We have to find the water of life. And without that water of life, the whole community will perish. And when it seems like all is lost and we will die of thirst, Jesus is the rock who is struck that gives the water of life that saves us. Jesus is the one who makes the bitter waters turn sweet. Jesus is our manna from heaven, our bread of life to sustain us. And some days it doesn't feel like we're making much progress. It just feels like we're wandering around as best we can. But we are not alone. We are not alone. The Holy Spirit is our cloud to guide us by the day and a pillar of fire to guide us in the night. And we are being led all the time and shown the way to the Promised Land. The Promised Land, of course, is the kingdom of God, where we come under His dominion, where His kingdom has come and His will is always the one being done. And we will stand before, we will finish our exodus, and we will stand before the one who says, see, I make everything new. I make all things new. The church of Jesus Christ cannot devolve into a loose association of individuals where everyone is just sitting around doing whatever is right in their own eyes. We can't do that because we are a people of mission. We are a people on the move. We are called to be a part of the mission of God. Jesus himself says this, No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And that same kind of thinking is what Paul is expressing and the, why, the reason why he's using this language of a new exodus. See, most of the time when a church gets bogged down by sin, it's because in some way they have given up on the journey. And we long for Egypt when we give up on the dream of a promised land. And there are many who would rather be slaves in the house of sin, dominated by all the pharaohs. There are so many pharaohs in this world than to be a free pilgrim in search of a promised land. The church, simply stated, cannot give up on the mission of God we can't stop. Our hearts won't let us. We have to go on. And so together we continue to try to build each other up and encourage each other. Because we are making our escape from this world. We are making our escape from the clutches of everything evil and everything that would separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. If you have needs for the prayers of this church, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, uh, you can let us know how we can help you. And uh, I'll be up here And you can share that with me. And also, uh, one last invitation for all of you guys who I've talked to you about this new discipleship group we're starting. We're going to meet up front right here for like five minutes after church. where I'm going to introduce you to each other and we'll take care of some housekeeping uh, items with that. Let's uh, stand and sing together now.